is Christ. We proclaim today that you are Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, Lord above all lords, King above all kings. We exalt you here this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Good morning. morning. I'd like to welcome you into Crossroads. If you're here with us in person, if you're joining us online, we're glad that you're you're here. A couple of questions for you're here this morning. Number one, who enjoys being stuck somewhere? (laughs) Let me take this a step further. Who likes being stuck in traffic? I was uh, thinking back the other day, like Kansas City traffic's not that bad. Like we have some tough moments, and I've probably got one of the best freeway modes to get to work because I really don't have to deal with traffic too much. Getting on K-10 in the morning and getting off on K-10 in the evening is bottlenecks for like two minutes, okay? And then it, it gets going pretty quick after that. When we were in Phoenix, I would drive over to Scottsdale uh, for, for half the year. That's about like a 30-minute drive for me without traffic. And then on the 101 freeway, which is like eight lanes wide, kind of like 435 as you're going on around town here, it would just be gridlock. And so I either had to leave like before three o'clock in the afternoon or just wait until midnight, you know, and then go home. And if I'm sitting at a red light for very long, like if I can tell, like if I can tell it's going to be long, I'll turn and go like five blocks out of the way to avoid sitting at that red light. Like in my mind, as long as I'm moving, then, you know, so even if I have to take a detour, as long as I'm moving, it's okay. Second question. And I'll get back to how it's related to the first in a minute. I'm going to rattle off four movie titles. I want you to tell me, if you know these movies, what they have in common, okay? The movies are Taken, Gladiator, Memento, and Kill Bill. Okay? Now, some of you might know what those have in common. You might not, so let me give you one more clue. I'm going to give you some lyrics to a song. And you can maybe tell me what this, the theme of this song is. It's a song by Carrie Underwood, fellow Oklahoman, by the way. Uh, the song goes like this. I dug my keys into the side of his pretty little souped-up four-wheel drive, carved my name into his leather seats, took a Louisville slugger to both headlights, slashed a hole in all four tires. Maybe next time what? He'll think before he cheats. So anybody know the topic we're talking about? <laughs> Those movies are all about revenge, okay? Those movies are all about somebody being hurt or wronged and then getting revenge on those who hurt or wronged them, and that's what her song is all about, battering the truck of an unfaithful boyfriend. Go back to that first question I asked you about being stuck, because revenge makes a wonderful movie topic. I mean, there's some great revenge movies out there. It makes a great story to read. It's not really that great as a theme and a plot for our own lives. And often what happens is when we get stuck trying to find revenge, we get in this mode of trying to to get even. I know know for me, where this typically plays out, it's on the road. It's of life where I want to get revenge on somebody, but driving is one of them. And, And I heard a phrase the other day that I like, I don't have road rage, but I have a lot of road pettiness. And, um... 
so, you know, somebody cuts me off in traffic, I will speed up and cut them back off. Unless I'm in my Jeep, because then it's not physically possible for that thing to go fast enough to get up in front of somebody and cut them back off. But if I see them like two miles later and I just pull back in front of them, I'm like, gotcha. You know, it's like, you got yours. Okay, now we're set, right? And it's always funny because there's one person in my life, I won't mention her name, but she's normally riding shotgun, who um, <laughs> tends to look over and goes, do you feel better about yourself now? I'm like, <sighs> and the funny thing is, she's worse than I am. I, I did that one day, like I was, I was just so furious at this guy in front of me, and, and uh, I, uh, he was brake checking me going under the speed limit, so I'm on his, his bumper, I'm sorry, I'm, this is confession time, I'm sorry. I know you thought I was perfect, I need to let you know this is the one area of my life I'm not, okay? But um, this guy got in front of me, at a, at, like cut me off at a stoplight, and then what's funny is she's, she's getting on to me. A couple of days later, somebody did the same thing to her. She chased him into a parking lot <laughs> and was yelling, you shouldn't be on the road. You shouldn't be. Wait, is she in here? <laughs> Mark says it doesn't matter if she's in here. It's online anyway, so... But this is what we do sometimes, right? Like we think if I can just strike back at somebody, it's going to release me. But often the more you strike back, the more you find yourself stuck. Can you go back to that first question we asked? And when we're stuck, we're facing a detour. Nothing gets us unstuck faster than the idea and the concept of, for, of forgiving somebody who has hurt you. Uh, we've been in this series called Detours and Decisions the last few weeks. We're actually making a bit of a pivot. We, we said this was going to be an eight-week series. It's going to be six. We just kind of decided to kind of combine some of these last few weeks together. So we're going to wrap this up next week. But today, as we, we follow the life of Joseph, the, the story of Joseph, if you don't remember, he was 17 years old when we're introduced to him, a spoiled, entitled, the favorite son, even though he's the 11th son of his father, Jacob, he's the favorite and his brothers hate him, they reject him, and they, they, they want to kill him, they decide to be nice instead and just sell him into slavery, so he goes to work for this guy named Potiphar in Egypt, and uh, in the course of time, he gets elevated to the top of Potiphar's house, and then Potiphar's wife wants him, he says no, she gets mad, so she accuses him of rape, he gets thrown in prison, eventually gets elevated to the top of the prison, he interprets the dreams of a couple of Pharaoh's servants, and... Then he's forgotten about, and he's kind of left. And eventually, Pharaoh's attention has gotten. He interprets dreams of Pharaoh. And as we kind of found out last week, he tells Pharaoh what those dreams are. There's going to be seven years of harvest and plenty and abundance, but don't go, like, do the Scrooge McDuck thing and dive off the, the diving board into the, the vat of gold, right? Like, store it back, save it, because we're going to need it. There's going to be seven years of drought and famine after that. And Pharaoh makes him the prime minister of Egypt as a result of this. And that's where we left Joseph last week, was he's now the prime minister. And wouldn't you know it, things tend to work out exactly the way Joseph said they were going to. In fact, at the end of Genesis 41, it says this, Joseph was 30 years old. File that away, because that's going to come back here in a moment. 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Joseph went out from Pharaoh's presence and traveled throughout Egypt. 
During the seven years of abundance, the land produced plentifully. Joseph collected all the food produced in those seven years of abundance in Egypt and stored it in the cities. In each city, he put the food grown in the field surrounding it. Joseph stored up huge quantities of grain like the sand of the sea. It was so much that he stopped keeping records because it was beyond measure. And then, of course, the next seven years happened. It says in verse 53, Then the seven years of abundance in Egypt came to an end, and the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had said. There was famine in all the other lands, but in the whole land of Egypt, there was food. Jump down to verse 57, And all the world came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe everywhere. Now, we're going to be in this second seven years. Joseph was 30 when he entered Pharaoh's service. He's at least 37 now. Based on the fact it says that it spread everywhere, I'm guessing this is kind of the latter half of those, those extra seven years. This puts Joseph somewhere around 40 years old. Okay, so we just kind of file this away. Think about this. He was 17 when his story began. Now he's 40-ish, give or take a couple of years when this takes place. But this spreads all the way into Israel as well too. And it affects Joseph's family back home. So his father Jacob sends his 10 older brothers to go to Egypt because they've heard that there's food there. So go buy food. We're gonna die if you don't. Uh, That's what we want you to do. And he sends the 10 older brothers. He doesn't send the younger brother, Benjamin, because ever since he lost Joseph, now Jacob has basically put uh, Benjamin in a bubble. He, he won't let him out of his sight. And he's not a kid anymore. If, if Joseph's around 40, that means Benjamin's somewhere like mid-30s. Okay, there's five, seven years difference between those two uh, in, in that range. But he doesn't want anything to happen to him because he was also born to Rachel, the favorite wife. So as we get on through, he sends the brothers to Egypt. They go to ask for grain. And it says in verse 6 of chapter 42, Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold to all of its people. When Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. Stop for just a second. Because if you remember, what was it that Joseph said that truly pushed his brothers over the edge? He told them about a dream that he had where they were doing what? Bowing down before him. That's what's happening here. Now, it's only 10 of them. It's not all of them. Eventually, they all will come and do this. But right now, it's the 10 older brothers specifically. Verse 7, as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger, and he spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from, he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied to buy food. And although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Now, again, two reasons why. One, Joseph's an Egyptian now. Like, yes, he's, he's a Hebrew, you know, by blood, but this is now potentially 20, 25 years since he has been there. So in the course of time, like, he's, it goes on to say he's speaking Egyptian. He's got an interpreter talking to them. So he, he talks like an Egyptian. He looks like an Egyptian. He dresses like an Egyptian. He probably walks like an Egyptian. I mean, the whole nine yards, right? And, and so... Where the Hebrews would have long beards and long hair, Egyptians shaved their heads, they, they shaved their faces, they cared more about their physical form, more about the outward beauty. That was a very big thing in their culture. He's probably a darker complexion now from being in the Egyptian sun all of this time. He speaks the language, he knows the customs, he, he knows how to, to go through all of the, the motions of being an Egyptian. So that's what he is, especially in front of them. He's not letting them know who he truly is. But again, it's also been... 
23 years at least. I showed you a picture of myself when I was 17, the first week of this series. I'm 40 now, so it's kind of the same time frame as Joseph here. I don't look quite the same. I still look somewhat the same, but there's a little more hair on my face, and it's a different color than it used to be for some reason. I haven't quite figured that out yet. Um, You know, things round out a little bit over the course of, of the years. Time has aged Joseph a bit, and they don't recognize who he is But he sees them and he recognizes them immediately. And in that moment, everything from the last 20 plus years comes rushing back. 20 plus years ago, they abandoned him. They rejected him. They sold him and took everything that he had. They took everything that he knew and they placed him into an uncertain future. And you know Joseph had to have his days that were difficult. Yes, we get to a point in the story where Joseph is doing well, but there were days that were difficult. And as he faces his brothers... You know this, if you've been hurt in the past, you can move on, but at some point, all of that hurt comes rushing back. And that's what's happening here for Joseph. Joseph is faced with an option here. He's one of the most powerful men in the world. That's not hyperbole to say that. And these 10 men are at his mercy. He does not have to sell them any food. He could let them starve to death. He could just throw them in prison and have them executed. Or he could gouge them and make them pay more than they could possibly. He could turn them into slaves themselves to buy food. He has every option to get even. He has every option to face down and and get back at them tenfold what they did to him. But we know the story. He forgives them. And, And I think if we were to look and put ourselves in Joseph's shoes, we might say what his brothers did to him was unforgivable. They didn't just insult him. They, just, they didn't just say, we don't want you in our life anymore. They literally sold him. They got rid of him. And then they lied to their father about it and said he was devoured by a wild animal. Let me ask you a question. What is something in your mind somebody could do to you, you would say it'd be unforgivable? I know you say, well, no, nothing's unforgivable. We all have our limits. We all have our lines. There's something. Maybe it's not directly to you because like for me, you can do whatever you want to me. I'll get over it. You hurt the people I'm close to, though, that's where my line starts to come into play. That's where my line starts to appear. You hurt my family, my wife, my kids, my close friends. That's for me where I start to put a wall up and say, you're welcome to be on the other side of it, not in this side. Where's your wall? Where's your line? What would you consider to be unforgivable? Now, here's the catch to that. The Bible doesn't let us do that. Our walk with Christ doesn't let us do that. And at some point, we're faced with, with forgiving what we would consider to be unforgivable. How do we do that? How do we face that down and, and forgive the unforgivable? Joseph showed us a couple of ways. The first thing Joseph did to forgive the unforgivable, he wept. Joseph wept. Okay, now think about this for just a minute here. Because before he weeps, now he may have cried also, but it, it doesn't say it. Before he, scripture says he messes with them. I love this. This is typical little brother action here, right? He throws them in prison for three days. He makes them think about everything. And they're questioning, why would God do this to us? You know, like they remember what they did. They don't know this is Joseph, but they remember what they did to Joseph. And then he accuses them of being spies, which is hilarious because that's exactly what he did to them that made them so mad in the first place. His father sent him out to spy on them. So he tells them, you're spies. You're coming in here to to steal what we have. But when he ultimately stares them down 
it says that he has to step out of the room. Verse 24 actually says he turned away from them and he began to weep. Like that's the, 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 the emotion that's rushing back here. And when the Bible says weep, like we read this, Jesus wept, you know, we read here, Joseph wept. We think weeping, at least I do, I think of weeping to be like kind of this soft cry. That's not what the Bible means when it says somebody weeps. Like when Jesus wept, the, the, the Greek that's translated there, it's a heavy, heavy, sorrowful cry, a deep, almost wailing cry. And I don't know if that's what Joseph's doing here or not, but he does this multiple times over these few chapters in this story to the point where he has to leave the room and he cleans his face off before he comes back in the room. You ever done that? You know, where you've been crying, so you just kind of wipe your eyes out so that nobody can tell. That's what he does here because he has moved on. He's gotten over it. It's been 20 plus years and God's put him in a phenomenal place that never would have happened without the pain and hurt to begin with. But you know this, you can move on and when you see the person that hurt you, it all comes rushing back. And that's exactly what he's dealing with here. It's all raw all over again for Joseph. And here's the thing. Often, guys especially, we do this. We put on a tough exterior. And it seems like the older we are as guys, the more that applies to us. I mean, I was kind of raised this way, kind of taught, you know, you don't cry. Now, I wasn't specifically told I couldn't, but I never saw my dad do it. I never saw either one of my grandpas do it. And so I just assumed that's those guys, we, we just, we're tough. We get over it, rub some dirt on it, get back in the game, get back on the horse, all those cliches, right? That's what we do. No, God gave us that emotion for a reason. He gave us the emotion of sadness for a reason so that we could use it when we've been hurt. There's a time and a place that we need to grieve when we have been hurt. Because when you're hurt by somebody else, you lose something that at times can be as precious as losing a person in your life. Because it's a part of who you are. It's a part of yourself. Some of you understand this. And the more you bottle it all up, the more anger and bitterness can start to creep in. They may creep in anyway. But note this about anger and bitterness. Anger and bitterness aren't emotions on their own. They're secondary emotions. They're always secondary emotions. And almost always they stem from unforgiveness, from not being able to let go of something that happened to you. So if you want to start being able to let go of something that happened to you, here's the first step to forgiveness. Write down and grieve what you've lost. Make a list. And I'll talk more about this here in a few moments. I'll come back and talk about a list, even, even kind of show you what a list might look like. But write it down, okay? Make a list of it. And don't be afraid to grieve it, even after the fact. Grieving a loss of something that hurts you is important. Number two, Joseph forgave the unforgivable because he focused on the good rather than the bad. This one can be hard, especially if you get into a situation where, like sometimes I can be guilty of this, I like to wallow in my own self-pity sometimes. I like to wallow in the hurt. I don't necessarily care if people feel sorry for me, but it's like I just kind of need that as, as a blanket for a while. But at some point, you've got to flip the perspective. And you've got to focus on the good that comes out of it. Joseph understood his brothers, they tried to hurt him. And it, it all stemmed from jealousy and pride. But Joseph ultimately saw the bigger picture. 
that even though this thing happened and it wasn't fun and it wasn't fair, God utilized it for his own glory. And God made something amazing come out of this. We said this back in week one, when detours happen in life, it's we blame others, we blame, blame ourselves, or we blame God. And the thing is, often it's ourselves or others that cause these. I don't think God causes bad things to happen in your life, but God gave us the free will to make decisions. And when we make a decision, it affects more than just ourselves, it affects people around us. But God will utilize that, that situation for his good and for his glory and for the good of others as well too, if you let him. If you can let him do that. Joseph, we know that he understood what his brothers tried to do. But he says later in Genesis that you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. And he goes on to say in in Romans chapter 8, Paul writes these words, that we know that in all things, in all things, good and bad, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. If you're going through a trial, if you've been hurt, if you're going through a major hard point in life, Sometimes instead of praying, God, get me out of this, maybe the prayer is, God, how can you use this? And how can you use me through this to help your kingdom and to help others? Number three, Joseph forgave the unforgivable because he did not rely on an apology before he forgave. That's where we often fall. I know a lot of people are so willing to forgive if, we put that condition on there, if they apologize. You know what? I'll forgive if they just admit they made a mistake. It doesn't even have to be a true apology. Just, they just need to admit it. That's where we tend to fall a lot of times. But Joseph didn't rely on that. He didn't wait on that because there's a danger in waiting on that. The more we wait, the longer it bottles up inside of us and the longer it can fester inside of us. And we start to actually lose sight of what forgiveness actually is. We get so focused on how that we lose sight of what forgiveness is. I think to kind of define what forgiveness is, we first need to look at what forgiveness is not. Because we kind of get an idea of what it is. But have you ever stopped to think about what forgiveness isn't? Forgiveness, there's a few things I want to share with you. Forgiveness, number one, it's not, again, dependent on the other person saying, I'm sorry. Here's, Here's why. Sometimes people hurt you and they don't even know they hurt you. And when you wait for them to apologize, it's never going to come because they don't even know they did anything. And sometimes they, you approach them and it actually makes them mad to let them know that. Like, that was no big deal. Get over it. Or sometimes they realize they messed up and they'll give you kind of an apology, but they don't understand the full depth of your hurt. We had a close friend that said something to us one time and it was, it was hurtful. It was kind of insulting is really what it was. But it wasn't just that they said it in an insulting way. They said it in front of other people, and it was kind of a humiliating thing. And, I mean, they apologized later, but it festered. And it it boiled up in us for a very, very long time, and it caused a rift in a friendship that still exists. And, you know, when we, we talked to them later, like, we're still hurt by this. It was like, still, get over it. That lingered. Forgiveness doesn't wait on an apology The longer you bottle that up, the longer you wait for the other person to kind of come around, you just allow it to lead you to a dangerous place. Somebody once said, waiting for the other person to to apologize and admit wrong. It's like you taking a drink of poison and waiting for them to die. It's only going to eat you up on the inside. 
So you've got to let go of that even before they admit that they might have done something wrong. Number two, forgiveness is not saying that what somebody did is okay. This is a big one. Sometimes we equate forgiveness with excusing what they did and wiping it away. That's not the same thing. There are still consequences to actions, but those aren't for us. Those are for God and for the legal system to take care of. Uh, You might remember the story uh, that was in the news a a few years ago. Tragic story of a police officer in Dallas who went into the wrong apartment and opened fire. And in the process, killed a young man. And it was kind of right in the middle of, of... the wave of all the, the shootings involving police, but this one caught attention. Number one, because of the incident, but then it caught attention, too, because of what happened at the trial. She was found guilty of the crime and, and, and sentenced to a harsh term in prison. But after her sentencing, when the family of the victim got to speak to her, the victim's brother stood on the witness stand, and he said, I want you to know that I forgive you. He said, because that's what he would have wanted me to do. And I'll never forget this because it's one of the most powerful videos I've ever seen. He actually looked at the judge and he goes, I don't know if this is allowed, but can I give her a hug? And they took her handcuffs off and they let her walk over and and he walked over and they just embraced. And both of them cried. And what they might not have realized in that moment, there was more power in that one action than any words that could ever be said. She is still going to be held accountable for her crime and she should. Forgiveness doesn't take away the consequences, but it does take away the condemnation that we hold in our hearts because of that. Number three, forgiveness is not the same as trust. This is big. When somebody has hurt you, they've lost your trust. Forgiving them doesn't mean you give your trust right back to them. It's not the same as complete restoration or reconciliation. If you've been abused by somebody, do not go back to that person. Specifically, if you've been abused physically, verbally, emotionally, or sexually, you are under no obligation to enter back into that toxic place where you can put yourself subject to further vulnerability. You need distance there. Forgiveness and trust aren't the same. Yes, it would be great if trust can be restored, but that's not always possible. And if it is, it's going to take a long time. If you've been cheated by a business partner, who stole from you or embezzled from you or framed you, don't go back into business with them. Don't do that. Don't subject yourself to further abuse. Forgiveness isn't required, followed by that requirement. Number four, forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. You ever hear the phrase forgive and forget? I can forgive, I do not forget. And I, I mean, I can remember what almost anybody has done to me. Doesn't mean I keep a list so that I can pull it back out when I need it. It's just I don't forget it. And you probably don't either. And we think about how maybe it would be nice to forget, but we have a model in the Bible that showed us what forgiveness looks like without forgetting. And is a model who we, we wear his name because this is how Jesus operated. Jesus is on the cross being executed, and what does he say? Father, forgive them. You think Jesus forgot the cross? Jesus, when he resurrected, preached the cross. He used what he went through to lead others to God, and then he told us to do the same thing. This is why we take communion every single week, so that we can remember what he did for us, so that we don't forget the pain that he went through and the rejection and everything that he dealt on our behalf. And number five, forgiveness, it's not an event. Forgiveness is a process. 
It's, it's not just something that you can snap your finger and go do. It takes time. And hear me, there's not a timetable on this. Okay? But forgiveness also is, is not a feeling. Forgiveness is a decision that somewhere along that process you have to make. You have to decide to do. You will never just feel like it. Like you're not just going to say, you know what? I'm good now. No, you have to make the decision. And understand this, saying the words, I forgive you, it doesn't completely just instantaneously change everything in your heart. There's still a process that has to go through, that you have to go through. But those words are a huge catalyst to help you as you go further down that. Forgiveness is a lot of things that it's not. And you may say, well, then what is it, Kurt? Well, scripturally, this is kind of interesting. Scripturally, forgiveness is a financial transaction. Say, so how, how in the world do you get that? How does Jesus describe forgiveness? Jesus, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, gives us a model prayer to pray. And what's the term he uses with forgiveness? Matthew chapter 6, forgive us our what? Our debts. As we also forgive our debtors. Remember when I said earlier, make a list of all those things. Make a list of the things that somebody owes you. This is why. Because a bank keeps a record of who it loans money to. A bank keeps a record of who owes it money. But when you forgive debts, what you're doing is you're freely releasing what somebody owes you. I told you earlier to make a list. Let me ask you a question. This is going to get real for some of you. But if you were to start making a list, what would be on your list? What did somebody take from you? Maybe for you, you could say, somebody took my childhood. Somebody abused me when I was a kid. They took my childhood, and at the same time, they took my innocence. They took that away from me. And those are things that I, I had to grow up as, you know, as a teenager, dealing with things that adults deal with. Maybe for you, somebody, somebody took, your, um, they, they took your childhood and, and your innocence. Maybe they also took your reputation. Reputation's difficult. My grandpa used to say, your reputation's like your credit score. It can go away in an instant, and it takes a long time to get it back. Maybe somebody stole that from you. Maybe they stole a friendship from you. Maybe they, they hurt you, and that was your best friend, and you grieve the loss of a best friend like they died. In fact, I heard somebody say earlier, or talk, talking to a friend uh, a couple weeks ago, going through a difficult decision, he said it would almost be easier if, if she had just died because I'm grieving her and she's, she's not gone. Maybe for you, you lost, maybe somebody took trust in men. Ladies, maybe you were hurt by somebody who made you promises and as a result, it hurts you to trust other people, other men. Or maybe not just men, maybe it's trust in leadership. Somebody abused power with you and, and so therefore you can't trust an authority figure. Or maybe... Maybe they took your peace. Maybe somebody stole that from you. Does your list look anything like that? If you were to make a list, would it look like that? What do you do with it? You make your list and you grieve it, and then what do you do? Your second step to forgiveness, you take that list and you throw it in the trash. And you release it. Because here's the thing you need to understand. If somebody owes you something they took away from you, they can't give that back to you. I would love it 
if the bank came to me one day and said, hey, you know, we've got, you've got a lot of money on your loan. You don't owe us that anymore. We can hope, right? <laughs> no, I have to pay that back. That's how it works. That's how a loan works, right? I owe them that. I have to pay that back to them. But if somebody took one of those things in that list from you, they can't give you that back. Somebody can't give you back your childhood. So when you release it, you're saying, that's okay. I know you can't give it back. I release it anyway. They can't give you back your innocence. They can't give you back your reputation. They can't give you back your trust in men or authority. They can't give you back your peace. Only God can do that. And God can restore your trust. So are you able to do this with your list as you release those things? Are you able to let them go as hard as it is and give it all to God? Here's the the thing we need to understand. In the end, we do this with our list because we have a Savior who did this to us and did this with our list that he had on us. And in the end, we forgive others not because they beg for mercy, not because they're worthy. We forgive because we've been forgiven. Because we have a Savior who went to the cross for us and a God who released everything that we had done to him so we could be restored to him. And we could be called his sons and his daughters. And that's the same requirement that's put on us. I forgive you and I expect you to forgive others. In fact, you go back to that statement Jesus made in the Lord's Prayer to forgive our debts. You realize in the Lord's Prayer... There's only one part of that entire prayer he comes back and gives commentary on, and it's forgiveness. Because he comes back two verses later in verse 14 of Matthew 6. He says, for when you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Whew. Why is that so important? What did I say earlier? Often we like to wait for somebody else to make the first move and then we'll forgive. But if we forgive like God forgives, that's not how it works. Because Paul writes in Romans 5 that God's love is demonstrated this way while we were still sinners. While we were still sinners. While we, I wish every Bible came with that in bold face, all caps and pre-highlighted. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Forgiveness, it it comes from mercy and grace. And that's what we need to show to others. Grace and mercy, you may say, what's the difference in them? It's simple. Mercy is not receiving something bad that we deserve. And grace is receiving something good that we don't. So who is it in your life that you have to forgive? What's your list look like? And how are you going to start releasing that list so that you can show grace and mercy like you've received it? We're going to do something a bit different this morning. We're going to take communion here in a few moments. Matt's going to come out and lead you through that. Before we do, we're going to prepare our hearts. And we're going to reflect just a bit longer on what those two words mean. And what they mean from God to us. I've asked the band to come up and lead us through a song. It's one we've done before, you know it. We're gonna sing about the mercy of God. If you don't know the song, I invite you to at least watch the words and pray through them.